Good morning, Friends Church. Um, welcome. We're so glad to see so many people today and face-to-face -face and some smiles out there. My name is Alita, and I'm part of the charitable giving team because nobody likes to talk about money, but um, that's a really important part of how we sustain the great things that are going on at Friends Church. Um, thank you to those of you who have given and do give regularly. We love um, having pre-authorized debit. You can do that online at www.friendschurch.ca. That pre-authorized giving allows us to budget and manage a little bit better. Uh, we also have the app, uh, the spiritual gym, which I think is just a lovely metaphor for um, church and what we do here. And of course, if you're a person like me who still handles cash, and or writes checks, we have a black box at the back and you can make sure that you get um, a tax receipt for that. So thank you so much um, to those who are giving and welcome to those of you who are new to Friends Church. Uh, we have an announcement today. We're all, of course, very aware and very concerned about um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and Friends Church wants to be a part of that and reaching out and helping them in um, a tangible way in the best way that we know how and so we are looking into that and we do have um, a link on the website um, go on there and it says donate and you can donate to the Ukraine and make sure that that money goes to really support um, our neighbors over there in a real tangible meaningful way thank you thank you team excellent excellent good morning everyone Okay, okay. We're not used to being a live audience. I get it. I get it. It's kind of freaky weird. I can just see your faces. It's so great. It's nice to see some of the people returning, feeling safe enough to jump in. Welcome. Welcome to Friends Church. And for all those that are still uh, live streaming out there who couldn't join us even if you wanted to, we're glad you can still be a part of what goes on here at Friends uh, on Sunday mornings in person. It's great. How is everyone? A nod, head nods, all right, I'll take that, I'll take that. Um, I was, uh, I was at work the other day, and Kathy, my wife, texted me. She said, Jeff, there's a light on the, that's coming up on the dashboard of my car. And of course, instantly, I'm just like, wait, what is it? And so she took a picture of it. And like any responsible husband, I said, I'll deal with this. It wasn't a check engine light, thankfully. Um, but she was like, well, am I safe or whatever? And I, I don't know. I'm not a mechanic, but I'm trying to assure her. I'm trying to relax her, saying, relax. I, you know, just a quick Google search. I think you're fine to drive it. I think you're going to be just all right. So she says, Jeff, I, I, this makes me nervous. This is kind of an ongoing text conversation. I said, Kathy, I said I will deal with this. Relax. A couple days later, <laughs> I get a text from Kath. She had to leave the house really early that morning. And I was in the bathroom getting ready for a shower. And she said, text, 
I'm calling the mechanic. She didn't have to say a whole lot. You know, it's like, how do you say I'm really pissed off at you without saying that? That was Kathy's way. She could have said, you told me you're going to deal with this, and now it's been two days. I don't believe you. My defensiveness gets up, and I start kind of coming back saying, been a little busy. I've been made a number of excuses. The truth is, I just forgot. If I was really honest, this has been a track record for me. If I look back over my life, the number of times I have, in all sincerity, looked someone in the eye and say, let me take care of that. You know what? Let's do that. I'll call you. Looked at my boys. Hey, that's a great idea. You know what? We're going to do this. Only to completely lose track of it. And then at some point have seen the disappointment in people's faces that I've let down due to my forgetfulness. It's a painful track record. It's a, it's, a, it's a tendency that I have that I really, I feel shame about. In fact, I, I'll be honest with you. I just told Catrice, I said, ignore my first page of my notes. Because I wrote in a different story I didn't want to talk about. Or that I wanted to talk about. This whole thing about me being late, or me forgetting, this is, this is something I feel incredible shame about. I didn't want to talk about. And every time it happens, it's like if I could grab my head and give it a, one of those. Because I'm going, why do you do that? Do you see the disappointment? Do you see the havoc you're wreaking? Or just the, the trust that you're jeopardizing? It's like... I just start chewing on a freezy and creating brain freeze. And, and I do it again and again. And I'm sitting there aching, going, Jeff, why are you doing that? I go, I don't know why I'm doing that. And then I go and do it again. Do you have tendencies in your life that you look at and you go, why do I keep doing that? Let me answer that for you. You do. You have something, some pattern in your life that likely sabotages some part of your world that affects you in a negative way. Likely, it affects others. Maybe you're a procrastinator and you find yourself leaving stuff almost until it's too late and then the pressure builds and then things don't get done the way you hoped. Maybe, maybe you're like me. Maybe you tend to be forgetful. Maybe you have impulsive tendencies. You, you act before you really think. You commit yourself before you really 
consider the cost and then later realize you're going to have to disappoint someone. Maybe it's insensitivity. You say things that cut people only later to kind of be left having to mop up the mess and, or, or people just walk out of your life. We have these things. If we're really honest with ourselves, you can see perhaps parts of your wiring that just have always created a bit of a problem. They keep us from many of the things that we value, the things that we want in our lives. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we could just make a decision? Like, just decide once and for all, that's it. I'm not forgetting again, Kath. I'm looking at some people smirk. That's exactly the look I get when I tell Kathy, I'm never going to do that again. Despite our best efforts, behavioral scientists are suggesting we'll likely never change our tendencies. We'll never get rid of them. They're so deeply ingrained in our human nature. They're part of who we are, part of our personality. I mean, they are entrenched inside us. How does that make you feel when you think about that? Whatever tendency came to your mind as I'm talking about different things, how does it make you feel to think you might never get rid of that thing? Now, before we get depressed, I have some good news. And that is, according to new research, these behavioral scientists are saying that it is possible to outsmart our tendencies. That is good news. It is possible to actually make these tendencies work for us for good. Groundbreaking research is showing that we can actually hack our psyches. We can play games, we can game our system to turn these frustrating patterns into assets. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that is true? Today we're kicking off a new series called How to Change. And we're going to spend five weeks, including today, talking about how to game your system, how to hack your psyche, and create life patterns that you actually want versus the ones you don't want, to create a better world in your life, in your relationships, those you work with and live beside. I'm so excited about this, because I, for one, am first in line saying, I need, I need some help changing. I got some stuff, some patterns. I just have created chaos, have created hurt, and I don't want them. Before I, I jump into the start of that, I want to explain why this is so important. Now, maybe just what I've talked about makes it obvious, 
But invariably, as we step into a series like this that's going to talk about a lot of modern psychological research and very tangible, practical ways to change our behaviors, we will hear people say, why is this part of the spiritual conversation? Like, why aren't we talking about something that's really spiritual? I mean, isn't real spirituality, and again, this isn't everyone, but there is an undercurrent that goes in church land, that this whole thing is really less about what is going on here in the physical realm here on earth, and it's more about the end game. If you came out of traditional Christianity, a lot of the teaching, a lot of it wrapped around or focused on, centered around kind of what happens beyond this life. That was the end game. So much of it was about a heaven and hell kind of where you're going to end up. How many were familiar with or have had brushes with this kind of reality? That's the paradigm where we were working from. So a whole bunch of the spiritual journey was just really about how do I make sure that I'm safe? That one day when my number gets called up, I'm not going somewhere hot. I'm going somewhere nice. (laughs) Uh, That's kind of a crass way of putting it. That paradigm of life and teachings is a bit problematic for us. And we've talked about this again and again, but it's always worth reminding. As we look more and more at that traditional model of this, uh, everything that we're talking about in spirituality leading somehow to an outcome that says, get me out of this crash and burn planet to somewhere beautiful and don't take me to some dark place. If that is what this whole thing centers on, not only is it become a very self-centered, what's in this for me, I'm trying to cover my butt, what do I got to do, what's the thing I got to do to keep myself from an eternal torment, which becomes very narcissistic in its core, but probably just as problematic as that, to that whole kind of paradigm, is it doesn't really correlate well with a lot of the teachings of Jesus and many of the authors in the Bible. For example, one day Jesus is out. He's asked by some people because they were worried about having the right beliefs. How do we know we're not into some kind of cult? How do we know that all this is going to lead to something like actually truly spiritual and not something else? Jesus, it was interesting, his response. He looked at these people. He said, yeah, there are false teachers out there. False prophets and they're disguised as harmless sheep. But really, they are vicious wolves. There is some false stuff going on around there, and you've got to be careful. But what's interesting is how he tells them to pick the good from the bad, the truly spiritual from that which isn't. He said, just watch. You'll, you'll identify them by their fruit. That's by the way they act. He says, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, You can identify people by their actions. You see, Jesus seemed to continue to point to the spiritual journey about being about a way of living, about right actions, 
that leads to something beautiful. It was another author named James. He comes out, he really spells that out. He said, dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this thing, this spiritual thing? If you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about your faith indicate that a person really has it? He said, you, if you come along, uh, alongside an old friend who's dressed in rags and half-starred, you say, good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Spirit. And then you walk off without giving that person so much as a coat or a cup of soup. What does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? When I talk about change and taking on a new way of life that isn't hurting people, this isn't just a neat idea. This is the game. This is the spiritual journey. It's living in a way that's truly making our world better. Now, here's the problem. It's exciting to say, hey, that seems to line up with what Jesus was about and what the Bible seemed, the tradition of the Bible. Yes, it's great. And it would seem to make sense of, of the things that we're experiencing every day. The problem with this is that it's hard. Like, I don't think any one of us, as I'm saying this, would be saying, no way. That's not why I'm here. I just want to believe the right things. I think every one of you that shows up on a Sunday morning, either in person or on live, you are showing up, listening to the things we're saying, talking about these behaviors, these ways of being in our world. And I bet every one of us sitting there going, that is a good idea. That I could do more of. That truly would make a difference in my life or in the lives of these people around me. But how many of us, once we walk out of these doors, gets life handed to us? And then we end up partway in the week and someone says, you're at church on Sunday. What did they talk about? And you go, I know it was, it was really made sense to me. And it was really something I wanted to do. You know how I know that that's what happens to you? Because that's what happens to me. People say, oh, I love that message on Sunday. I'm thinking, what did we talk about again? <laughs> it happens. We start off with these good intentions and then nothing. And yet, James is sitting there saying, isn't it obvious that this God talk without God acts is really outrageous nonsense? It's a shred. That's why when we talk about actually being able to change patterns and tendencies, something inside me lights up going, oh, please, show me how. Because life is too short for charades. Life is too short to be pretending that we're doing something that is making no difference. question is, how am I supposed to change? How do you break bad habits? How do you curb these tendencies? How do you more consistently make healthy choices that honor both ourselves and others around us? 
That's the million-dollar question. A guy named Dan O'Reilly, he's a behavioral scientist at MIT in Boston. Well-respected school, highly reputed. He was frustrated, though, by the procrastination, the level of procrastination of his students on class assignments, driving him nuts. He knows he has some of the most brilliant minds in the world who are attending his classes, and yet he's watching them. They're heading out on ski trips. They're waltzing down to the campus center to party with their buddies. Meanwhile, the assignments are stacking up. They're getting further and further behind in their work, and he's looking at this going, you are paying huge money. You have the opportunity to learn so much in this thing. Why are you screwing up? Why are you just blowing off these opportunities to learn? They would do so much better if they would just work on their assignments when they're handed out. So he teams up with his colleague to run a study. 99 of his students, right at the beginning of a 14-week course he's about to teach them. To pass the course, they have to hand in three assignments, three papers. So he gives half the students in his class, let's say 50 of them, kind of strict deadlines. He said, first paper, here's your deadline. Second paper, here's your deadline. Third paper, here's your deadline. Spaced them out amongst the 14 weeks. But to the other group, he did something different. So the other 49, let's say. He says, you over here, I'm going to we're going to do something different. You can hand in those assignments anytime you want. You could hand them in on the last day of classes. You want to do that? Go for it. Or you could self-impose deadlines for yourself. Whatever deadlines you want. I'm right here. You tell me what deadlines you would like to do those papers on. Here's the deal. You set your own deadline, but for every day you're late on that deadline, I will deduct some marks from that assignment. You can wait right till the end, or you can self-impose. However, you got to be on time, otherwise I deduct marks from that paper. They ran the test. You know what they found? Of the 50 that were given this option, the majority of them, 34 of them, chose the restrictive option. They said, we'll we'll decide on our own deadlines. 34 of them. They wanted self-imposed restraints to help them achieve their desired outcome. Now, I'll get to how it all turned out in a moment. But an author named Amy Milkman, she wrote this book, How to Change. This, has, this book actually has formed a large part of the basis for this series. Fantastic book. She calls these self-imposed restraints that this prof gave his students the option to do, she calls them commitment devices. They're not new. History is littered with stories of these commitment devices, people using them, myth or real. We can read about Odysseus, if you've ever read the Odyssey. He was asked to bound, he asked to be bound to his ship's mast so he wouldn't give in to the temptation of the siren's song and steer his ship off course. He said, tie me up. I know I'll give in and I will lead our ship astray. Tie me up. 
Victor Hugo, if you've ever read the book, Hunchback of Notre Dame, he's the author. This guy, amazing author, but he was a terrible procrastinator. Terrible. He was a socialite. Loved being out, partying with people. Loved it. He was under such an incredible deadline, a writing deadline, to get his first draft of The Hunchback of Notre Dame to his publisher. He literally stripped himself naked. This is crazy. Took all his clothes and locked them up, leaving himself a shawl to cover himself with. And he wrote naked to eliminate the temptation to head out and socialize with his neighbors. Here's the thing. These self-restraints work. Going back to that study Dan and his colleague did with these MIT students, in the follow-up study, they found that students who chose to self-impose deadlines over those that just said, no, we'll just do it right to the end, they handed in their work with 50% fewer errors. 50, 5 fewer errors than those who didn't self-impose the deadlines. This works in a whole bunch of different ways. It was a Philippine bank that came up with a product everyone thought was crazy. They said, we're going to offer a locked savings account to our clients. We're going to try this. A whole bunch of internally managers are going, it's never going to work. They wanted to offer a locked savings account that didn't pay extra interest. You know how you can... You can imp- you can invest in RSP, you lock it in for five years, you get a better interest rate than if you lock it in for one year. Nah, they didn't do that. They said no. You will get the exact same interest as someone who's putting it in an everyday savings account that you could pull out any day you wanted. Zero flexibility. They offered this to 800 clients. Well, maybe not surprisingly, only 224 of them took them up on it. That'd be 28% of them said, yeah. We'll take you up on that. We want a savings account that's locked in. They decide when they can get that money out. Take it out a year from now. So they set one year as the deadline. They had to wait before they could pull anything out. They then took a test group, kind of a control group, 500, that never were offered that product. They just had regular savings accounts. And they tracked over one year how much each group saved. You know how much that group who picked those savings, that locked-in savings account, how much more they saved? 80%. Eight, zero. 80% more by choosing the restrictive option, the commitment device. The examples of these self-imposed restraints, these commitment devices are everywhere, and again and again the research says it works. They help us change our behavior for the better by looking into, uh, locking us into choices that we make when we're clear-headed versus then when we're out of our minds a bit, when when we're in the middle of the temptation. I know how many times it's happened. Kathy and I are getting ready to head out with friends. We know we're not going to a health food joint for food. And we'll have this discussion in the car. I'm going to eat healthy tonight. (laughs) I'm not eating any fries tonight, Kath. She says, good. That's good. 
I'm not doing it. She goes, good. It's great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat chicken tonight. I'm going I'm to avoid the burger. Man, we get there. Everyone's sitting around. All of a sudden, that waitress brings by this monstrous burger. Oh, and it smells so good. And then everyone around our table is going, I know what I'm ordering. I'm saying, what are you ordering? I'm getting one of those burgers. Really? You're getting one? I can tell Kathy's just out of the corner of my eyes looking at me. And I look at her and I say, Kathy, I am eating healthy beginning tomorrow. (laughs) How many have been there? Yeah. Oh, the willpower in that moment just evaporates. I was feeling so strong. I was feeling so determined. What happened? Zero desire to follow through on what would have been a real clear-minded decision. Commitment. Let me ask you something. What if I had made a deal with Kathy? As we were driving, I said, Kathy, I'm eating healthy tonight. And she would give me the eye roll. And I said, no, no. I am eating healthy tonight, and I'll tell you why I know. If I don't, I'm going to take $500 out of my golf budget this year. And I'm going to give it to you. And you can spend it however you want it. Something would happen if that, as I'm studying that menu. Kathy would be sitting there going, do it, do it. <laughs> Go for it. That looks amazing. Doesn't it? And I'd be going, no, I won't. Not handing over f- <laughs> however many rounds of golf to you so you can go and spend it frivolously? No way. Something would happen immediately, wouldn't it? You think about yourself and how you could quickly, all of a sudden, the, will, the motivation levels have just risen through the roof. I'm like, I'm having kale tonight. I'm <laughs> no dressing, no dressing, bring it on. <laughs> This is what they call a cash commitment device. For some people, with enough money, it's all it takes. It's amazing how all of a sudden the motivation levels just come out of the woodwork. Sometimes it doesn't even have to be much. I remember years ago, back, um, my partners, we started this church together with, Kelly and Mark. We would meet for a staff meeting every Tuesday morning at Kelly's place. This was early days before we even had offices, anything. And I had this bad habit of showing up five minutes late. And they were always pranking me. Like it got to the point where it was just comical. Not so much to them. Actually, no, it wasn't comical to anyone. They, They were like annoyed, but they were just rib me. I remember at one point, without even realizing what I was doing, I got so tired of the ribbing. And I, I, every time I do it, I go, show up late. And I'm going, oh, great. Here we go again. I remember one morning I said, I will pay each of you 
two loonies next time I'm late. I never paid out once. Didn't even know what I was doing. I was using a cash commitment device. I, I, I just said, I, I couldn't stand the thought of having to give them money for that. Not after they teased me. I don't know how, what happened, but suddenly now in the mornings, I was like, you're not being late. I don't care if I have to run to work in boxers. I will be there on time. Was never late for one of those meetings again. Sometimes it doesn't even take that much. But these commitment devices can be powerful. And there's all kinds of them, hard and soft. I, I mentioned back in uh, October that I, Kathy and I got in a Peloton. And I jumped on that thing. Hey, I'm still going. Still going strong. Loving it. 20 pounds down. How's that for a... I, I'm, I can't believe this. I had some work to do. Still do. But I'm on it. I'm loving it. What the heck? How does that work? I can't help but think that one of the reasons that my motivation levels are running high is they have this feature on there where the Peloton community, someone finds out, they start following you, just like social media. So you have friends who are on Peloton as well. And they sign up, they go, hey, I'll follow you, you follow me, great. So you sign up, all of a sudden, didn't realize this when I accepted all their invites, they can see all my workouts. I had people weighing in. Hey, it's been a few days. <laughs> I'm like, what? Wait, how did you? What's going on here? Sure enough, public humiliation right there. My whole calendar. What workouts I did. What my results were. <laughs> that subtle thing. Commitment device, just a little softer. That's what they call a psychological commitment device. Commitment that comes with only a, a small psychological price tag for failure. You ever, how many did dry January or heard about this? I watch, okay, wow, no dry Januarys. And our crowds are going, forget it, man. <laughs> We're not falling for that. I saw, I saw a hand there. No, forget that. We don't do that. I had a bunch of ball hockey guys, man. Those guys drink like fish. But they signed up for dry January. I, I would have put money down that they wouldn't do it, that they wouldn't make it. Some of them are now, they just finished February. What is that? What would motivate them to do that? They go on record with all their buddies, and all of a sudden they show up in the pub, and what are the buddies doing? Oh, is tonight going to be the night? You break down, buddy? No. They don't want to get ridiculed. It's a soft commitment device. We see campaigns that do this. All, all they need you to do is step out and go public with it. And they know the chances of you following through are much higher. Obviously, the harder the commitment device, the more consequences behind your whatever commitment you're trying to make, the, the more powerful the motivation behind it. Read story of a guy that said, man, I want to write a book. He gave himself a timeline. He actually had three different things he wanted to do. And I looked at that list. I'm going, whoa, that is hardcore. 
And then he said, I'm going to pay out 14 grand if I don't achieve this. And he made it clear who he was going to pay it out to, the cause, the whole bit. And this was not a really wealthy man. That amount would have made an incredible impact on him. And he achieved it. You can go softer, but obviously the motivation levels will just be less. You can do it however you want, but what is undisputed now is the effectiveness of these devices. They create motivation. Sadly, though, despite their effectiveness and despite the fact that a lot, there's such a huge body of research around this stuff, not everyone will actually use these. Research is suggesting that we all will fall into one of two camps. The first camp is what they call the sophisticates. That's kind of a nice name, isn't it? Trust me, it's much better than the other name for the other group. <laughs> but what's weird is how they describe the sophisticates. They describe these people as simply those who have come to terms with their impulsivity. They've come to terms with their weaknesses, with their laziness, with their forgetfulness. They just come to terms with it. And they don't trust their willpower alone to think that it will be enough to overcome those tendencies. They don't believe it for a second. So it's the sophisticates that are willing to use these commitment devices to figure out what it's going to be to achieve the goal they want. The other group, and by far the majority of our population, fall into the second group. And they're called the naifs. You know what naifs means? Naive. Uneducated. No, inexperienced. Let's go with that. We're naive about how we think change will actually happen in our lives. We have not accepted our tendencies. We keep thinking that more of the same will bring change and then are surprised when it doesn't happen. Overwhelming majority fall into this camp. And I can tell you, in parts of my life, I'm as naif as it gets. Again and again, I can't figure out why I'm so surprised, but I forgot. I'm like, ah! Did you bring home milk? Ah! Did you actually think, just locking it into your head, you were going to do it? I actually did. The good news is it's possible to convert from a naif to a sophisticate. That's the great news. Because I have plans to become a sophisticate in some of these areas of my life. We can actually wire into our lives certain commitment devices that start uprooting or working around these tendencies, gaming the system. The question is, no longer can I change? That's not the question. The question is, will I choose to change? Because the technology is here. 
we're going to take five weeks to talk through this process to help each of us start brainstorming. Now, maybe as I'm talking this morning, you're sitting here going, hmm, what would I focus on? What is the part? What is the thing that I would like changed in my life? What is the tendency that I could do less with? That is your journey to figure out. My list is long, but I I can't have a long. I'm going to just focus on a couple here. But it starts there. What would I change? And then am I willing to do the things that are necessary to make that happen? Over the next five weeks, we're going to explore different things. part, Part of the challenge is not just saying, okay, I'm going to change. That, this next question that I just talked about, what would I change? It's a values decision. Next week, Vince is going to come up and he's going to talk about the importance of whittling down of all the things that you could do. What is the most important changes that could unlock other stuff? And it's funny how you make one change. They talk about this in this. You make one change and it can have an incredible domino effect to a whole bunch of other changes. You've watched this when someone all of a sudden starts to just get in shape. What it does, trickle effect into so many other areas, motivating them to other parts of their lives. That's just one example. Figuring out your value system, going, okay, what's it going to be? And then starting there. We're going to take five weeks, and you know what? Here's what's exciting. I don't know what percentage would be considered NAFES in this room, or what areas are really burning out of control in your life. But can you imagine in five weeks if you actually wire in a system to game the tendency and change your life? I can't tell you the, the beautiful blessing it would be to my family if I could uproot some of these tendencies or just work around them. I'm betting perhaps that might be the case for some of you too. So I want you to stick around for this, to join us over the next five weeks. Commit yourself. Start thinking deeply. What is it? Where am I going to? Why would I make that change first? What is your hierarchy? We'll get into it deeper next week. This week, I'm just going to simply challenge you to really think deeply about this belief that it's just a matter of more willpower to change. That, that like this, this, this thinking that I'm just, it's just more of the same and I, I'm just going to muster up, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to ask you to call BS to that. If you want to change, something more than just willpower is needed. Let's start there. I want to pray. God, I thank you that though I have been made amazing, I have all these incredible talents. I have these frustrating weaknesses. And rather than beating myself up, I'm grateful that I see these opportunities, these new technologies. Help me Make me mindful. Help me not to beat myself up. Remind me that I'm okay just the way I am, but I can 
I can become even more beautiful and more impactful in this world. And I pray that for every person here. Amen. All right. Well, have a great week, everyone. Let's, uh, let's commit to change, can we? Except for all you perfect ones. You, you can take the next five weeks off. All right? Have a great week.